Welcome back to the program. To say that music and pop stars today are transitory is truly an understatement. Very few performers today are building careers for the ages, like entertainers, like Frank Sinatra. Frank Sinatra was one of the most popular and famous entertainers of the 20th century, and he left an enduring legacy, which still survives 100 years after his birth. We're going to talk about this today with my guest, David Lehman. He's the founder and longtime editor of the Best American Poetry Series and the editor of the influential Oxford Book of American Poetry. He received fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation and the National Endowment for the Arts. He's a core faculty member of the Graduate Writing Program at the New School. And it is my pleasure to welcome David Lehman here to talk about his new work, Sinatra Century, 100 Notes on the Man and His World. David Lehman, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure, Jeff. Thanks for having me. It, it is even more powerful, as powerful as it is, to look at this, this incredible legacy that Sinatra leaves. It's somehow even more profound, looking at it in the context of today, where entertainers and entertainment is so transitory. I mean, the contrast is, is remarkable, and I wonder if that's something you thought about as you were working on this project. Well, I totally agree with you. Uh, it seems to me, uh, without uh, dispute, that fame today is uh, something uh, less uh, uh, enduring and more momentary. Uh, it's a sort of state of celebrityhood where one succeeds another at a dizzying pace. Uh, Sinatra had lasting fame, and uh, uh, another uh, thing that distinguishes uh, him as a musician and as a uh, personality is that uh, his influence, has, if anything, has, has grown and uh, our fascination with the man uh, endures and uh, I think primarily because he's the greatest popular singer we ever produced. Uh, the, I guess the flip side of that is that contemporary music seems to me uh, inferior to the great American songbook as interpreted by such singers as Sinatra and Ella Fitzgerald and Mel Torme and Matt Cole and Bing Crosby and Judy Garland and so forth. It's also Sinatra as a personality, a personality that, that transcended even the quality of his work as both a singer and as an actor as well. Yes, um, I, I feel that uh, his uh, singing... Uh, exemplified a kind of uh, method acting approach. Uh, the way the actor, uh, along the lines of Marlon Brando or Montgomery Clift, approaches a role to, is to inhabit that role. And, uh, and Sinatra does that in his song so convincingly that when he sings of loss and defeat, you feel that he's really been there. It's a quarter to three, and he's drinking another Jack Daniels at the bar and drowning his sorrows. And by the same token, he can sing, you know, I've got the world on a string sitting on a rainbow and make you feel that you're on a rainbow. Uh, buoyant and ecstatic, you make me feel so young. So somehow he makes the songs incredibly convincing, and, and I think that attests to the application of his personality, the, the determination to be superlative, to make art, and also to honor the art of uh, Ira and George Gershwin, of Irving Berlin, of Cole Porter, of Rodgers and Hart, of Rodgers and Hammerstein, Leonard Bernstein, you know, Dorothy Fields, the great songwriters. 
this nexus between performance and singing, was that always, was that quality always there in Sinatra, or was that something that evolved over the course of his work? It, it evolved and it went in, in, in different ways. Um, here you had an extraordinarily volatile personality that mirrors itself, replicates itself in the volatility of his career, which begins with him being an, an incredible overnight sensation. But it, it goes to terrible depths of despair when he loses his marriage and his recording studio and his movie contract and so on. And, uh, and then he makes his fabulous comeback. Uh, so these are, these are very wild uh, gyrations. I think from the start, he um, sang in a way that was different from the prevailing one, from the Crosby-defined sound, which was casual and very... Uh, cool, and uh, and and in the great case of Crosby and Dick Hames, was uh, very much on the deeper uh, side of uh, the musical scale. Uh, Sinatra was toward the tenor um, side of the you know the baritone. Uh, he and uh, and he made it a point not to copy uh, Crosby, but to uh, to take a more bel canto approach. Uh, and uh, even early on, uh, he improvised uh, lyrics that people that people uh, hadn't really done that before. He sang a lot of uh, parody lyrics, or what they call special lyrics, for an occasion, so that you know uh, uh, that old black magic would be rewritten as that old Jack magic when he was buddies with Frank Sinatra, with uh, JFK, and uh, he went to the White House. Uh, for the uh, inaugural ball. That's just one example. That decision not to engage in that kind of coolness, that to, to be more engaged, to be more active, was that a conscious decision on Sinatra's part? Well, I, I think that in a sense he was, uh, he wanted to be con- considered cool, and he was the epitome of, of cool in the sense that his stylistic choices seemed to define a masculine ideal. I mean, we associate Sinatra with a fedora, uh, with a certain look, uh, trench coat, either worn or uh, slung across one's back. Uh, all these things are, are props, uh, like the cigarette that he will smoke when he sings one for my baby and one more for the road. Uh, but he, uh, he exemplifies a certain attitude toward masculine style. The importance of a tuxedo, for example, is a way of life. And, uh, and he was extremely cool. He was the person other people imitated, other men imitated, uh, in their, how they dressed, how they talked, uh, how they approached life. Um, so he was kind of influential in mm-hmm. uh, ways that go beyond his singing, uh, great as it was, and beyond his movie acting, which was also considerable. It was different, though. I mean, as you pointed out before, it was very different than the Crosby kind of cool that, that had preceded it in many ways. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, you know, it's hard for me to imagine being Crosby great as he was, um, delivering a song of passion or heartbreak and making you feel that, oh, this guy has really been been there. And that's not Bing's 
métier. It's not his strength. Uh, his strength is, uh, would you like to swing on a star, you know, or, or a, 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 a rather more detached kind of love song. Um, and uh, Sinatra, on the other hand, when he sings a song, he's all heat uh, and intensity. I'm a fool to want you, he sings, and when you feel that he's singing to Ava Gardner and, and that this romance is playing itself out on, the, on a huge uh, stage. Talk a little bit about the degree to which Sinatra was aware that he had such influence in terms of the culture of the time. Well, uh, you have to consider that this young man, at the age of 24, was uh, extremely famous um, uh, and extravagantly ambitious and, uh, and would be mobbed by adoring fans in a way that was un- unprecedented. So he, uh, he never knows a, a normal day of uh, life. From that moment on, he needs police protection wherever he goes, and it, you know he makes news, and he's not a shy fellow, and uh, he pops off. He endorses Franklin Roosevelt for president in 1944, and teams up with Orson Welles to do a benefit for FDR, and this becomes news because he is Frank Sinatra, he's the voice, he's the teen idol, uh, so he's aware of what his influence is. Uh, you know, pretty early on. What did he see as his competition for influence? Was it other entertainers, people from other realms? Where did he see his competition? And and who and the other part of that is who did he emulate in the way he carried himself publicly? Well, it's easier to say whom he emulated in, uh, in musical terms. He, he he was certainly influenced by Bing. Uh, who inspired him. Uh, he was influenced by Dodie Holiday and her way of phrasing. Uh, he had a very good ear for the best music of the day and, and the jazz of the time. And uh, it was an instinctive feel. And uh, he uh, was always the jazz musician's favorite popular vocalist. As for models of how he conducted himself... I, I think it's very important to understand that he was a first-generation Italian-American young man mm-hmm. uh, growing up in uh, Hoboken, New Jersey, when it was, there was nothing glamorous about the place, and uh, being part of that community and, uh, you know, su- subject to the prejudices against Italian-Americans at the time and very uh, conscious of this, proud of being Italian-American and also a, a natural uh, uh, promoter of tolerance. Uh, his, uh, he had his own songwriting team of Sammy Kahn and Julie Stein. Uh, and uh, uh, they were uh, Jewish. And uh, he employed many other uh, musicians uh, black musicians were didn't, were not deemed equal in treatment, and Sinatra stood up for them. Uh, in a famous case, when he traveled with a Dorsey band, he said that either Cy Oliver would get a room, or you know he would punch out the manager of the <laughs> hotel. That that sort of uh, 
sing, but also had a macho aspect to it. Right. One of the things about Sinatra that, that is so fascinating, and and maybe it, it has to do with different phases of his career, but he was always seemingly not only comfortable in his own skin, but comfortable with whatever group that he was a part of. Yes, I, I would agree with that assessment. I, I think that uh, he formed extremely close friendships with people with whom he worked on a project. So uh, if you look at the casts of the various movies he was in, you'll have a clue to something about his social life because he would be very, very um, friendly with whoever it was. Uh, he was very extroverted, at least some of the time. He's, you know, he's a man of total contradiction. In his own words, an 18-carat manic uh, depressive. Uh, he's, but he's uh, unable to be alone or to sit still. And uh, he shared a box at Dodger Stadium with Cary Grant and, and Gregory Peck. I thought that was... Uh, uh, an amusing fact. How did he look at his acting career? Did he take it as seriously as his music? The quick answer is no. Um, he put a lot into it, and he had high expectations for his film career. He was very proud of the work he did in From Here to Eternity and also The Man with the Golden Arm and uh, The Manchurian Candidate. And uh, and he fought for other roles, Um that uh, he didn't get. Uh, but doing a movie, he was always in a hurry. He was always impatient. And he, he had the theory that first take is best take. And uh, uh, maybe it is. Uh, but he uh, was not quite the perfectionist that he was in the, in the recording studio, where he would sing, I've got you under my skin, 22 times before arriving at a version that he finally was willing to sign off on. You know, and those, those outtakes are pretty damn good. But the one that we have is, uh, you know, a classic. It'll endure, as you said. As long as people love music, they will want to listen to I've Got You Under My Skin from that 1956 album, Songs for Swinging Lovers. Why was there such a difference? Why why did he have a different attitude, almost a contemptuous attitude, I suppose, with respect to the movie work and, and the perfectionism that, that he applied to music? I believe that uh, the movies as an industry, um, uh, and certainly at that time, involved a collaboration among many, many uh, people, uh, producers, directors, uh, assistant directors, uh, the studio chieftain, and, and so on. It's a big collaborative process. Whereas in the music world, he very quickly established that he was the authority on Frank Sinatra. I mean, any Frank Sinatra record, he had total control over. And uh, that meant that he could be the perfectionist he wanted to be. He could take the risks he wanted to take musically. Um, he never had that kind of control in the movie. And uh, really, and at some point, he you know, just did some roles just to, for whatever reason. I suppose one of the things people might think about Sinatra is that he was a cynical guy. But, but as you really read more and as you look at what you've put forth here, he was really not cynical at all. I uh, believe that he was the opposite of cynical, mm -hmm. that he reacted 
uh, artlessly and innocently uh, and truthfully and spontaneously to things and events and always had a sense of his importance and who he was. And turns out he was right. He was the heartthrob of young women in the 1940s. Then he became the role model for American men at, uh, 10 years later. That's a, that's a one-two punch. Um, that's uh, ex- So he's this extraordinary character. Uh, and, and that, on top of being, you know, the best singer we ever produced. Talk a little bit about his nightclub life. Nightclubs, as you talk about in the book, were really the center of so many things that went on with him. Yes, that's true. Um, Sinatra was uh, sort of wanted to succeed in every angle of entertainment world. And uh, so he, he did. He got a, a movie contract with MGM. He got a record contract with Columbia. He had a radio show of his own with, you know, uh, fancy sponsorships. And uh, he um, was totally interested in the nightclub as a phenomenon uh, because the music would be live and there would be a live band. And he really got off on that. He, He loved performing and having an audience and an intimate audience that was drinking and having fun and being uh, sort of uh, having a sophisticated feel to them. And uh, he, he, he performed at the Copacabana at the uh, Waldorf Astoria. Uh, later, he performed at in Las Vegas at the Sands Hotel. He single-handedly uh, renewed the uh, uh, economy of Las Vegas, which had fallen on sort of iffy times. When Sinatra and the Rat Pack performed out there, the the, the hotel rooms were booked to the full. His career, which I think a lot of people forget sometimes, was not a a trajectory totally upward, that there were lots of ups and downs along the way, particularly in in the 40s. Talk about that. Well, I think when he came out from FDR against uh, Thomas E. Dewey in 1944, there were... Uh, right-wing columnists who thought that he was a presumptuous punk, <laughs> and they went after him. And uh, he's, you know, he uh, he doesn't like being be insulted, uh, and uh, there would be, you know, bad feeling between him and certain columnists. And one of them he punched out in a nightclub, a fellow named uh, Lee Mortimer. Um, and uh, also he, uh, Frank, uh, uh, sings a song, What is America to Me, uh, the, the House I Live In, is the name of the short in 1945, promoting uh, tolerance of religion and race. And this is a, uh, it's a great song. It's very moving to hear the Frank of 1945 singing that song. Uh, which was written by two two fellows who wound up blacklisted when uh, uh, the McCarthy committee and the HUAC were in their heyday in the 1950s. Uh, Sinatra did not shy away from making sort of statements, you know, um, uh, such as appearing uh, to promote uh, 
religious tolerance or health care was another concern he had at the time. What was his relationship with Kennedy, with the Kennedys in general and with JFK specifically? Sinatra and JFK got to be incredibly friendly in this uh, way of shared machismo and delight in one another's company and ability to uh, uh, be on top of the world and and seize the moment, Uh, smoke uh, the best cigar and uh, drink drink, uh, 18-year-old scotch. Uh, And uh, JFK had an even worse case of uh, satyriasis than Frank did. And uh, Frank had lots of uh, um, different girlfriends. Um, and he loved uh, women, authentically loved women and having sex with them. And, and what impact did that have on their friendship, on their relationship? Well, I think they were very close. Um, I think Frank wanted it to work as a friendship, and he uh, produced the inaugural ball of 1961 with Leonard Bernstein present and conducting, and with everybody uh, flying in from all over the world to take part. And this is a very memorable occasion, and uh, he remains buddy-buddy with JFK un- until it turns out that a woman JFK has met uh, through... Uh, Sinatra and the Sands and that whole scene was uh, uh, sleeping not only with the president but with the head of the Chicago mob and uh, this uh, meant that Robert Kennedy felt that the Kennedys should cut off relations with Sinatra Mm -hmm. and uh, that's basically what what happened Uh, and Sinatra was very hurt because he had invited the JFK and entourage to visit him in Palm Springs, California, and never wanted to do things by halves. Uh, Frank built uh, extra houses for Secret Service agents and installed uh, the most modern uh, communications equipment. And, uh, and then they got a phone call from Peter Lawford, uh, his uh, Rat Pack buddy, who was also the brother-in-law of JFK. And... Uh, he told Frank that uh, the Kennedys weren't going to come to visit, and they had canceled visit. But they were coming to Palm Springs. They were going to stay with Bing Crosby. <laughs> they were going to stay with his <laughs> chief rival, who was also a Republican. Well, this really embittered uh, Frank toward Bobby. Mm-hmm. Uh, he hated Bobby Kennedy. One of the other areas where Sinatra was, was kind of ahead of his time was in the issue of race. Talk about that. Well, uh, Sinatra felt uh, a very keen sense of what it meant to be uh, uh, the object of uh, slurs. Uh, He had heard uh, that he was a WAP, a Dago, a Guinea, and uh, while he reserved the right to uh, use the word Dago for a friend like Dean, uh, he he was well aware that that this signified prejudice and that he grew up among it. Uh, other Italian Americans who felt that prejudice, and, and uh, there were a lot of Jewish Americans at, uh, in uh, that Hoboken uh, neighborhood, and he was very friendly with some of them. And uh, so I think he he understood from the start that there were some cases subtle, in some cases 
not-so-subtle forms of prejudice against uh, various groups, including uh, blacks who were openly discriminated against. And uh, he did his best to get uh, uh, them employed to insist that they be um, treated equally. And uh, he would uh, hire musicians and, uh, and uh, of course, the great uh, African-American musicians of the time uh, he would collaborate with, uh, like Louis Armstrong. They, they did something that was just terrific. And he, uh, he uh, recorded several albums with the Count Basie band. Uh, and, uh, you know, Miles Davis really worshipped uh, Sinatra's singing, which is very interesting because what Miles does with the trumpet, it, you could really understand as a uh, parallel to what Frank does with uh, a lyric. How important was the Rat Pack? Well, I think it, it was important in a way that it also contributed to the understanding of the masculine ideal of mm-hmm. the time, the early 60s, the era of astronauts and James Bond and JFK in the White House. And uh, he was these, you know, uh, five or six millionaires who liked to uh, conduct themselves as if the world were their oyster and... Uh, who liked uh, high living and uh, getting uh, uh, drunk and uh, playing around and uh, going to casinos, wearing a tuxedo, uh, and uh, and also doing you know interesting concert work. And uh, uh, they made this film in 1959 called Ocean's Eleven, and the film was made during the day, and at night they performed at the nightclub. And, uh, you know, they had a sort of maximum amount of energy. Sinatra, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., Joey Bishop, Pierre Lawford. Uh, and you can see what a good time they're having <laughs> making Ocean's Eleven. And that's also the, the time when, through Peter Lawford, uh, JFK became a friend of Sinatra and a habitué in uh, Las Vegas in casinos where he would go unaccompanied by his wife. Mm -hmm. And talk about Sinatra's relationships with women, and and certainly they were many, and many of them are the stuff of legend. Talk talk a little about the overview of that. Well, I believe Sinatra sincerely uh, adored women. Uh, His mother was the uh, original for his love impulses. She made much of him. She also was very demanding of him, and uh, uh, he, I think, early on uh, um, demonstrated uh, uh, an unusual uh, susceptibility to feminine charm coupled with uh, the desire to uh, have sex with with a a woman as a way of uh, uh, sharing joy. And he had uh, affairs with different women. And one of the interesting things is that most of the time, to the extent that these were public, uh, Sinatra and the woman in question were very friendly. Uh, uh, Peggy Lee, a wonderful singer, uh, and Frank had an affair and was apparently uh, mutually very fulfilling. And when Peggy late in her career fell ill, 
Frank sent his private jet to pick her up and bring her to her home, where he had had installed an air conditioning system for her. Now, these are sort of typical acts of generosity, and if you listen to Peggy Lee's granddaughter talk about her mother and her relationship to Frank Sinatra, you realize that they, they were intimates, and they were also lifelong friends. Who was the one love of Sinatra's life? Well, the one he fell hook, line, and sinker for was Ava Gardner, who was uh, then, uh, could be said, the most beautiful brunette in all of Hollywood, which meant all the world, and uh, certainly a, a kind of tigress of sexual energy. And in fact, she was uh, very hard to pin down, which may have been part of her appeal for him. I mean, she thought nothing of fooling around with uh, a safari hunter or a matador or another leading man, and this drove the jealous Sinatra crazy. And they fought all the time. They had the greatest fights uh, and then the greatest makeup sex. And this is not a, uh, something that's going to sustain a marriage. So they were uh, on the outs more than anything else. And uh, he uh, sang in the 50s songs of tremendous pain, a wonderful melancholy that you listen to uh, over and over again. Uh, they're on the records in the wee small hours and uh, only the lonely. And uh, it is uh, said by Nelson Riddle, the great arranger, among others, that Ava Gardner taught Sinatra what real loss felt like, what rock bottom felt like, what, what it meant when uh, you lost out on romance and, and love. And uh, he sings very convincingly, more so than anyone else I can think of, uh, of defeat. How would Sinatra feel about how he's remembered today? I think he uh, would be uh, pleased that, that uh, we're talking about him. I think he would have liked my book. Uh, I'd like to think so. Uh, I think he'd be proud of uh, uh, what his influence has been, how much he has still listened to, how many of us uh, love his mu music. I think he'd be very pleased with the fact that his three children are very fond of him and are dedicated to him. Uh, I think all, all that's true. He used to say as a toast, may you live to be a hundred and may the last voice you hear be mine. And uh, that's a very funny uh, toast, like every joke. He means it. He would like you to listen to his uh, <laughs> song on the very end, you know. And uh, he, he did not lack for a, a assertiveness and, uh, and confidence. David Lehman, his book just out from Harper is Sinatra's Century, 100 Notes on the Man and His World. David, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank, thank you for asking me all those good questions. Thank you. In the wee small hours of the morning While the whole wide world is fast asleep You lie awake and 
think about the girl And never ever think of counting sheep When your lonely heart has learned its lesson You'd be hers if only she would call In the wee small hours of the morning That's the time you miss most You'd be hers if only she would call In the wee small hours of the morning That's the time you miss her Oh 